morning, church. Grace and peace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome to this time of worship at Faith Community United Methodist Church. How good it is to hear the organ again, and thank you to Steve and to Carol for that wonderful duet starting us off this morning. Uh, I invite you to uh, find the attendance pads that are in the pews if you haven't already done that. Fill those out, pass them along to those worshiping with you this morning. Uh, Welcome to those worshiping online as well. This is Communion Sunday, and uh, the communion kits are out in the narthex. Hopefully you got one of these on your way in. If not, they're right out in the narthex, and you can grab one. Uh, This is how we're taking communion right now, and uh, the bread is the the piece right under the sheer uh, clear plastic right on top, and you take the uh, sheer clear plastic part off first for the bread, and then the other seal is for the juice. There's also gluten-free bread out in the narthex if you need some gluten-free bread. Uh, If you're worshiping online, I'd encourage you to prepare your bread and juice as well so that you can celebrate communion with us uh, when we come to that at the end of the service. Your announcements are in the bulletin. I'd encourage you to look those over. Lots of uh, big things coming up. The garage sale coming up this week. The uh, shoes for the shoe list coming up. The, uh, what's the other one? The festival of sharing. Getting, getting those items in for festival of sharing uh, uh, day, uh, a week from tomorrow is when those are due, if I can get that out. Uh, so just be sure that you're noting all of those wonderful opportunities to reach out to to people here uh, in Xenia and around the world with with Christ's love. We come to worship God this morning, and so I invite you to an attitude of worship. I invite you to stand as you're able for the call to worship. Good morning, and happy Labor Day weekend to all of you. Please join with me. Listen, God is welcoming us to this time of worship. Young and old, rich and poor, all are welcome. This This is is a place place where all belong. belong. This This is is a time when all are accountable to God. The maker of all seeks our common good. The God of mercy calls on us to be merciful. We are not judges over our sisters and brothers. We are called to love our neighbors as ourselves. Come to sing praises and put your trust in God. Come to prepare yourself to serve in Christ's name. We bring all our needs to God, our hope. hope. We We want want to share faith and hope with with others. If you would join, please, in our opening hymn, In Christ There Is No East and West, number 548 in your United Methodist hymnal.
Thank you. Please be seated. If you would join me in the opening prayer printed in your bulletin. Author of all humankind, come to lift us up to our full humanity as we worship you in this hour. You surround us on every side and are acquainted with all our ways. You know our shallow motives and our deepest thoughts. You are aware of the distinctions we make and the favoritism we express. Yet you welcome us, not as strangers, but as heralds of your reign. We want to worship you and to represent you well. Come among us now with your transforming power. Amen. And now please join in our prayer hymn, Open My Eyes That I May See, number 454 in your United Methodist hymnal. Bow now for a time of silent prayer.
O Spirit divine, fall upon us now. Open our eyes to see your truth. Open our ears to hear your voice. Open our hearts to receive all that you have for us this day, but not just this day, in each moment of our lives, that all might be devoted to you. For you are our strength, our salvation. You are the one who created us and all that exists. You know how it all ties together, Lord. You know what is best. You want what is best. Help us to simply submit to your will in all things. Lord, we give you thanks for the workers of this country and around the world as we celebrate this Labor Day weekend. And Lord, we know there are so many whose labors go unnoticed, who are unappreciated for all of the work that they do. Lord, may we not take a thing for granted, but celebrate those who give of their time and their efforts and their energy to make this society run and to, to meet all of our needs. Lord, thank you for providing all that we need, and thank you for those who work according to your will and by your strength. Lord, we pray for this world hurting, broken. We pray for your peace to reign supreme. We pray for the conversion of all of those who are turned against you, Lord, that you might bring them back to your truth, bring them back to your ways. Make all those who lead us faithful to your call. Make us faithful to your call. As we live according to your word, as we seek to minister to others by your grace, thank you, Lord, for this faith community where we can minister to one another and to others. Help us to see those who are being left out. Help us to see those who are in great need and, and crying out for love and for support. And may we be that answer to prayer. Work through us for your glory, Lord, in this community and throughout the world. We pray all this in Jesus' name as we offer to you now the prayer he teaches us to pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. I invite the ushers forward as we continue to worship God through the giving of our tithes and offerings.
please join me in the prayer of dedication. We give because you have been generous to us, gracious God. We give because we need to give in order to realize your image within us. We give to feed the hungers of body and soul that are all around us and deep within. May the ministries of this church meet the needs of our members, our community, and our world. Help us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Amen. Please be seated. This morning's scripture lesson is taken from James, the second chapter, verses 1 through 17. 
My brothers and sisters, do you, with your acts of favoritism, really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? For if a person with gold rings and in fine clothes comes into our, your assembly, and if a poor person in dirty clothes also comes in, and if you take notice of the one wearing the fine clothes and say, Have a seat here, please. While to the one who is poor you say, Stand there or sit at my feet. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers and sisters, has not God chosen the poor in the world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? You do well if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For the one who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Last week we read a passage from chapter 1 of James, this week a passage from chapter 2 of James, and the next few weeks we'll continue that pattern, chapter 3, 4, and 5. So I want to give you a little bit of background as to who this person is who wrote this letter of James. It's long been noted that Jesus himself never wrote any books. All of the books of the, the New Testament are in some sense written about Jesus, but none of them were actually written by Jesus. There are no books or, or letters or gospels or anything else written by the hand of Jesus. We do have something very close, though, about as close as you can get without it being directly from Jesus himself. We have a letter that was written by Jesus' brother, the, the James, who, who wrote the letter of James, which we find in the New Testament, is the same James referred, else, referred to elsewhere in the New Testament as James, the brother of Jesus or James, the brother of the Lord. This is the same James that, that the people of Nazareth referred to when they said of, of Jesus, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? This is not the James that was named as one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. That James was the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. This James is the son of Joseph and Mary. So when I say that he is the brother of Jesus, I don't mean that in a, in a spiritual sense, just like all of us are brothers and sisters in Christ. No, he was the flesh and blood brother of Jesus. 
Now, different branches of Christianity debate how literally to take that word brother. The Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches, they both believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary, meaning that she was a virgin all of her life, meaning that the people referred to in the Bible as Jesus' brothers and sisters could not have been born of Mary. Eastern Orthodox churches explain that by saying that Joseph was quite a bit older than Mary, that he had been previously married and had children in that previous marriage, making James and the others stepbrothers and stepsisters of Jesus. The Roman Catholic Church claims that the word brother is used very loosely and that they were actually cousins. None of that is in the Bible. What the Bible actually says about the virginity of Mary is that she did not sleep with Joseph until she had given birth to Jesus. The most straightforward and logical interpretation of that is that after she gave birth to Jesus, Mary and Joseph had a perfectly natural marriage, which produced a number of children, just as most perfectly natural marriages tended to do in those days, and that the firstborn of those children following Jesus was James. So although they did not come from the same seed, they were born of the same womb and raised in the same home. James knew Jesus from the time he was born. They grew up together in the same house with the same parents. They shared the same upbringing. They received the same religious instruction. They were steeped in the same values. They imbued the same beliefs and way of life. That's not to say that they were close all of their lives. Siblings do have a way of growing apart. This was certainly true of Jesus and his siblings. James, the brother of Jesus, was not a disciple of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. In fact, it's entirely possible that James thought his brother was a little off. When the Bible says that some people told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here, they want to speak to you. Some have suggested that they were there to take Jesus home, to, to convince him to stop what he was doing and come back to a normal life with them. Jesus wouldn't go with them then. Instead, he said, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. For Jesus, kinship was not based on an accident of birth, but on a oneness in mission. All who relate to God as their Father, all who serve God and live for His kingdom, are brothers and sisters of Christ. There is a radical leveling of all distinctions in the teachings of Jesus. And James saw that firsthand. There's no indication that James believed in Jesus as the Messiah prior to the resurrection. But when Jesus rose from the grave, one of the people he appeared to was his brother, James. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. He appeared to, appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. James probably hadn't believed in Jesus prior to that moment, but then he witnessed with his own eyes his own brother, who he knew had been crucified, dead, and buried. He witnessed him alive, resurrected from the grave. And then he knew. He knew it was true. Jesus is Lord. 
Very shortly after that time, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. When there was a dispute over doctrine or or Christian practice, James is the one that the church went to to settle that dispute. When the Jewish Christians were upset that Paul was converting Gentiles without requiring them to be Jewish, James is the one who settled the debate once and for all. It's natural that James was seen as the leader and the judge of the church. He was, after all, the oldest brother of Jesus on whom the church was founded. Who better than him to declare the words of Jesus? Who better than him to speak the mind of Christ? Not everyone felt that way, though. Despite recognizing James' authority within the early church, Paul and James always seemed to be at odds with one another. Paul clearly chafed a little bit under James' assumed authority, especially James' insistence on the importance of the law, when for Paul it was all about faith. And like I said last week, during the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther clearly sided with Paul over against James. For both of them, James seemed to be too much of a legalist, too much focused on the rules, overly concerned with right living. It seems to me, though, when you read through the letter of James, the things he's so concerned about are exactly the same things his brother was so concerned about. The things that James teaches are essentially the very same things that Jesus taught as most essential. Consider, for example, James chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Was it not Jesus himself who, after teaching the disciples the Lord's Prayer, told them, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Was it not Christ himself who admonished his followers, judge not, lest ye be judged? Didn't Jesus tell the parable of the unforgiving servant, who, though his master forgave him a huge debt, went out and demanded repayment of a much smaller debt, forgetting the mercy that he had just been shown. The master then called him a wicked servant, saying, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Then he delivered him over to the jailers until he could pay the whole debt. Jesus said, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So James says, for judgment will be without mercy to anyone who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. There's another parable of Jesus to which this verse also applies. From Luke 16, the parable of Lazarus and Dives. Dives is the name commonly given to the rich man in the parable. He's not named in the Bible, but Dives is Latin for rich man. The rich man walked past a, a poor man at his gate day after day, giving him nothing to eat, showing no mercy. When the two died, the poor man, Lazarus, went to Abraham's bosom. The rich man went to Hades. There he begged and he pleaded for mercy but he would be shown no mercy. He had refused to do mercy in his life, so he would find no mercy in death. 
The phrase James used in 2.13 is literally, to the one who has not done mercy. To the one who has not done mercy. In Greek, doing mercy was an expression for almsgiving. So what James says is not just about being forgiving, it's about being charitable, generous, open-hearted, and open-handed. If Dives had given alms, he would have found mercy. But because he didn't, his judgment was without mercy. It makes sense that James would make this allusion here, doing mercy in relation to the rich and the poor, considering the context of the rest of the chapter. All of chapter 2 leading up to this verse is about drawing distinctions within the church between rich people and poor people, condemning the church for showing favoritism to the rich while shunning the poor. It's not clear if this was a problem within a particular community that James was addressing. His letter is not addressed to a specific church or a specific community like the letters of Paul are. Rather, this is a general epistle to all of the churches. So it must be that James saw this as a problem, or at least a a potential problem, a real and present danger, all over the place, everywhere the church existed. It seems that there was a tendency within the church to want to attract the better segments of society and leave behind those considered less desirable. Evangelism went out to those with nice clothes and fancy jewelry, The church might still minister to the poor, but they certainly didn't want them crashing their fellowship gatherings or joining around the same communion table. This tendency to show favoritism, it's always been a danger in the church. John Wesley noticed it among the Methodists in his own lifetime. He preached in open fields, evangelizing mine workers and lower classes who were not welcomed in the Anglican churches. The poor made up a good large segment of the original Methodists. But Wesley noticed that as they embraced the gospel, they began to rise in status and social standing. And as they began to rise in status and social standing, they began to focus on that rather than the gospel. The the Methodists became respectable, meaning that they began to embrace and exude the manners and the values of the upper class and lost the fervor they once had for ministering among the poor and the unrefined. Wesley believed that this social climbing of the Methodists could very well be the downfall of the movement. Why? Because Jesus came to preach good news to the poor. Because Jesus came to minister among the poor. Only a few decades into the existence of the Christian church, James already saw Christians leaving the poor behind and showing favor to the rich. And the point that James makes about that is not only that it's wrong for the church to be engaged in these acts of discrimination, it's that it flies in the face of everything that Jesus stood for and everything that Jesus taught. It was Jesus our glorious Lord, the one we claim to follow in all things, who said from his own lips, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. 
But then he also said, listen to this, woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. James wrote, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Another way of translating that would be, with your acts of discrimination, you do not hold the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. There's a little preposition in there, in or of. Do we have, the, do we have faith in Jesus or do we hold to the faith of Jesus? That, that preposition isn't in the Greek. It could be translated either way, really. And really, it needs to be translated both ways. Because how can we possibly claim to have faith in Jesus if we, through our acts of favoritism and discrimination, are contradicting the faith of Jesus? Jesus was very clear about his faith, what he believed in, what he stood for. Do we stand for the same things? Jesus witnessed a poor widow putting two small small copper coins worth about a penny into the temple treasury. He called his disciples' attention to it and he told them that she had put in more than all the rich people who had put in large sums. Now, those rich people weren't doing anything wrong. They were probably tithing, which is what the law commanded. Some of them might even have been going beyond the tithe and feeling very proud of themselves for doing so. But where was the sacrifice? Where was the sacrifice when they still had more than they needed and and they were giving from their abundance? We in the church have a tendency to celebrate the big givers. We do the same thing that the rest of society does. We memorialize them by naming part of the building after them or putting a nameplate under a stained glass window that they paid for or making sure that they get their way at the board meeting. What do we do to commemorate the woman who puts a $1 bill in the offering plate even though she doesn't have money for lunch that day? Are we really honoring Jesus in our acts of favoritism? Jesus said, when you give your offering, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't let the other hand see it, but by God, make sure there's a plaque with your name on it so that everyone else can see it. Now, to be fair... Most of us do not engage in that kind of showiness. But we sure do kowtow to those who do, don't we? And that's the point. That is exactly the point that James is trying to make. When we honor the rich and disregard the poor, we are denigrating the faith of Jesus Christ. You would do well, says James, If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We've heard that law before, haven't we? It was lifted up by Jesus as one of the two greatest commandments. To illustrate that law, Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan, a story which breaks down all social barriers, a story which makes it 
impossible to continue discriminating between people based on any of the values of this world while still claiming to be followers of Jesus. But if you show partiality, says James, if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Anyone who doesn't think that prejudice and discrimination is sin, as deadly and damning of a sin as murder or adultery and everything else in the law of God, is not basing their faith on the faith of Jesus Christ. But I have faith in Jesus, you might say. I have faith in Jesus, so all those sins are forgiven. Do you really? Do you really have faith in Jesus if you're not willing to adopt the faith of Jesus? What good is it, James asks. What good is it if you say you have faith but do not have works? Can faith save you? We're conditioned to answer yes to that question. Yes, faith can save me. Faith is the only thing that can save me. But is it really faith? asked James. Is it really faith if it doesn't show forth in works shaped by Jesus? And I believe that James is asking that question in concert with his brother, our glorious Lord. Is it saving faith if it doesn't lead to living the way of Christ? Is it living faith if it doesn't lead to adopting the mind of Christ? James answers that question quite bluntly, no. No, it is not. Faith itself, if it has no works, is dead. And a dead faith cannot bring you life. A dead faith cannot bring you life. A dead faith cannot save you. If we are to find life in Christ, then we must adopt the faith of Christ. If we are to be saved by faith, then ours must be a living faith, a faith that takes on the values of God's kingdom rather than staying mired in the mucky values of this world. A faith that finds its life in the ways and the teachings of Jesus rather than just calling on His name in vain. A faith that breaks down all barriers. A faith that welcomes all people into fellowship. If we are to have a living faith, then it must be the faith of Jesus. For it is in Him and in His way alone that we find life. Amen. I invite you now to join with me in the prayer of the great thanksgiving as we prepare for the sacrament of Holy Communion. It's in the front of your hymnals on page number 13. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. 
It is right and a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image and breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. You delivered us from captivity, made covenant to be our sovereign God, and spoke to us through your prophets who look for that day when justice shall roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. When nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And so, with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. Your spirit anointed him to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to announce that the time had come when you would save your people. He healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the spirit. At his ascension, you exalted him to sit and reign at your right hand. On the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took bread, gave thanks to you, broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup, gave thanks to you, gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so in remembrance of these your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your Spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your Son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, Almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. I invite you now to take the bread. The body of Christ, which is broken for you, take and eat in remembrance of him. the cup of salvation poured out in the blood of Jesus Christ. Take and drink in remembrance of him. Let us pray. O precious Lord Jesus, our Savior, we give you thanks for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself to us. Thank you for your grace which saves us. Thank you for your spirit 
which fills us. Continue to be with us, Lord, inspiring us to be your holy people this day and always. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. I invite you to stand as you are able for our closing hymn, which is number 617 in the hymnals, I Come With Joy. Let's go from here and continue to live and to speak his praise for he is our lord we live by his faith go in the name of god the father son and holy spirit amen <laughs>